The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 12th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will have to make amends, public amends. And the most memorable moment of the entire 2020 Democratic campaign will be played back for both. The presidential candidate will be presented with the attack of the vice presidential candidate upon him. And he will be asked, was she right or were you right? And if you're saying she was wrong, then why'd you pick her? And the vice presidential candidate will be asked, were you right? And if you were right to criticize Biden then, why shouldn't we be listening to that criticism now? So let me remind you of what that moment of disagreement was, as if you haven't seen or heard this clip, I don't know, a dozen times today already. It was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And... You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. On the Hacks on Tap podcast, strategist Mike Murphy had an idea of how this could be addressed and massaged. No, the, the dumb answer is, oh, heck, it was just politics. We're a couple of bullshitters. We didn't mean anything. It's pro wrestling. Uh, now we're fine because we all hate Trump. I, I think that's where a lot of people will say to go. I don't, I don't like that at all. I would say, yeah, we had a real fight. And we were both running from our hearts because this election is so important to replace Trump. But we, had a, we, we reconciled. And in that process, I learned that Joe Biden is the guy to reconcile a country that's torn apart. You know, it, he, mm-hmm. he, he really showed a certain grace. He forgave me for my aggression That's as good. a young candidate with ambition. And now we're united in this cause. But make it a metaphor and for healing the country as they healed their relationship. And now, and now we're on the same bus. Right, exactly. Both parts of that answer are smart. Murphy's right that the, eh, it's all politics, that Trump would say that, and that's cynical. His voters are cynical. Democratic voters don't want to be. The second part about what came out of the process of disagreement is reconciliation. That's a good framing. But I was wondering, what about the disagreement itself? What about the substance of the disagreement? So I would advise this. Joe Biden could say, you know, Kamala's right. I did have problems with busing then because my constituents had big concerns with busing. And I still don't know that busing is the best solution, but I have done everything I can do to fight segregation, which is a fine answer. And it's true. And Kamala said, when I brought it up, it was important to bring to Joe's attention my concern and to bring to his and the nation's attention my background. And that's what I did. And I'm glad I did it. And then you could do the whole reconciliation part. And it's great. The difference between this and most substantive disagreements between a presidential candidate and a vice presidential pick who was once his rival, usually his, like Reagan or George Bush going back and forth on supply-side economics, is that in this case, that little girl was me, that's a zinger, but it doesn't actually refer to a policy difference today. Biden and Harris aren't really apart on busing or schooling or integration. And that was true when Harris said it, and that was one of the reasons why the attack was a one-day wonder and didn't go much of anywhere. As vice president, Harris can emphasize that she has 100% support for Joe Biden's busing policy, his school policy. It happens to be her busing policy, and 
It's a good busing policy. The real disagreement was of Harris early on in the campaign presenting her history and her perspective to Joe Biden and also to the American people. And then Harris can say, he heard me then and I think he hears me now. And as long as Joe Biden doesn't say, you're a damn liar, man, that little girl was me, everything will be okay. On the show today, as outbreaks of looting and lawlessness continue to afflict major American cities, the Seattle police chief resigns. But first, a TV show about dating that is, are you ready? Wonderful and life-affirming. Yes, I said it's about dating. But it's about dating on the spectrum, love on the spectrum. That is the title of a Netflix series from Australia. It follows a group of young people in their teens, but mostly 20s, who, like the rest of us, are looking for love, but they're doing so with a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome or autism. It's a compelling series, and the show's director stops by next to talk about the ins and outs of a reality TV show where no one gets to feel terrible in the end. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Love on the Spectrum is an Australian reality show that's airing on Netflix. It follows Australians in their late teens and 20s who, as the title might imply, are on the spectrum and also looking for love. Love's hard when you're neurotypical, but when you're not, you can sense the complications that might arise. We meet Michael. He's 25. He wears suits on dates, but is also obsessed with Marianne of Gilligan's Island. He wants very much, quote, to be a husband. Olivia is an actress in a theater group for people with disability. She ping-pongs when excited, and she often gets excited. Mark loves dinosaurs, and I mean loves them. I'm going to editorialize and say this guy is sweetness personified. He didn't connect with Maddie, though, who is really funny, but does prefer a guy who is, quote, ripped. Keanu O'Cleary is the director of the Netflix series Love on the Spectrum. And first of all, Kian, I just want to congratulate you. It's a lovely, lovely series. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for having me, and um, I appreciate your appreciation. 
Now, as I look through your IMDb, it seems like you're a director. That's what you do. You're not a disabilities activist. I don't know if you have any connection to the autism community, but how'd you come to this project? Before making Love on the Spectrum, I'd made uh, two series previously that featured people with disabilities. So they were both three-part series, so kind of six hours in total. In, in a similar vein to Love on the Spectrum in terms of character-led stories of people. Um, and th- those series were about people looking for employment. And so when we were making uh, those series, we met lots and lots of people on the autism spectrum. And we just kept hearing these stories of, of these young adults who were on the spectrum who really wanted to find love and were struggling. And I guess that that's kind of how the idea first came about. We, we just sort of looked into what support there was in Australia in terms of, you know, dating and relationship, help, advice, support for people on the spectrum. And there was really very, very little. So we thought it was a great opportunity to kind of shine a light on this kind of area that that had gotten forgotten. You know, looking into what supports there are, it's all, it, most of it is is geared towards kids in school. And then when people leave school, often they're left kind of without those supports in place. And uh, so I guess that was the kernel of the idea, just kind of meeting lots of people and hearing these stories. I guess you mentioned Mark before, who loves dinosaurs. This is a skull of a Tyrannosaurus rex. I'm very proud of it, you know, I basically worship it. This is by a paleo artist. This guy here is a grade A bonafide dinosaur. It has a small sail on its back. In the mating season, you would want to show that off and say, hey, baby, look at me. I'm the one you want to mate with. You know, Mark, for me, is the perfect example of why we wanted to make the series. You know, Mark's 30 years old now. And when we, when we filmed the series of Mark, you know, he was 29. He'd never been on a date in his entire life. He's a sweet, good-looking, lovely young man who wants nothing more than to find a partner and has never even been on a date. So... You know, when you sort of see that and you meet someone like him, you kind of realise that there's something, you know, something's got to give. Some, there needs to be more help, I think, in that area. And I guess, yeah, that was the kernel for the idea and um, we sort of went from there. Yeah, and you're rooting for him. And in fact, you're rooting for all these characters, which is kind of a break from reality TV. I don't watch too many dating shows, but I know enough that there are stock characters and there's often a villain. Well, there is at least tension involved. Obviously, you don't want to make any of your characters out to be villainous. But how did you grapple with the remit of a reality television show, which is you have to get people involved and maybe rooting for, which also can sometimes mean rooting against some of the characters? Yeah, look, I think it's an, that's an interesting question. And I guess, firstly, in, in our minds, it's kind of, I see it as a documentary series in that we are really telling these people's stories in depth you know we're really actually getting to know these characters but maybe it's a bit of a hybrid maybe it's a bit a part documentary part reality in that you know we we did have a hand in lining up dates for people and the reason we did that is because as i said before you know we're talking we're talking about people who uh, out of the seven singles we featured in the series six of them had never been on a date in their entire lives so it wasn't something we could just follow as as a pure documentary because, you know, people weren't able to kind of find themselves in that world and so we helped them along a bit. So the only kind of intervention, I guess, from us was finding a match for people who wanted us to help them find someone. And 
I guess when you, uh, I mean, if you think about Michael's story, for example, you know, Michael actually met Amanda on that singles dinner. You've heard of Asperger's? Yes. I actually have it. So do I. But mine's mild. So is mine. Wow. <laughs> I was 13 when I got a diagnosis, so it was my first year of high school. I never knew I had Asperger's until my mother told me when I was 13. That's not too bad. Did she know when you were younger, though? I think so, but I don't know when. Yeah. Because when I was in primary school, I often sat alone. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you something? Yeah. Um, I actually enjoy, enjoy talking to you. Me too. I'd like to catch up with you again sometime. You never know. What do you say? Uh, we had a hand in helping to organise the dinner. That was a group, uh, a disability organisation in Michael's area who do organise social events and had always talked about kind of organising something that had more of a dating theme to it but never got around to it. And you just keep hearing these stories of people saying, yeah, we, we really want to set up, you know, something where people can meet people and, and there's this kind of dating lens to it. There's a, there's a dating theme. But, you know, the people organising these things are all parents and, you know, no one has any money and it's, it's, it's really difficult. So, yes, we had a hand in uh, setting up that singles dinner, but then Michael, you know, and Amanda hit it off at the time and then organised to go on a date. So in that sense, we kind of didn't have a hand in that as much but then other people we did. And then I guess when you look at the couple stories, you know, that's pure documentary in every sense. And, and that was really important for us to include as well is the stories of couples, which I guess, again, is something you wouldn't see in this type of show normally. And, and I guess that was a question when we were developing the series. Like, you know, we really wanted to tell these couple stories and we were thinking, you know, is that going to work? Are we going to be able to tell these stories in, in this kind of context of this sort of a series? Are people going to still be tuned in and want to hear their stories when there isn't that, I guess, jeopardy and anticipation of will people get it on, will they not? And interestingly, I did work on some uh, reality dating shows back a long time ago before I kind of moved over into documentary. And back then, this was a long time ago, and back in those days, yeah, you were trying to steer things and you were um, wanting to find a, a drama in a situation. But what's interesting nowadays when you compare what happens in the world of filming reality TV dating back then to now is that back when I worked in it, you, you almost, you really had to try and kind of make things happen. But these days, because a lot of these people who apply to be on these shows and a lot of the people you see on these shows, they understand the language so well of reality TV that they know that the way that they're going to get the best airtime is by creating conflict and drama. And it's almost like, you know, I have friends who are producers in, in that world now and it, you're pulling people back instead of pushing them forward. And I guess when you compare compare this series, yeah, that we you know we weren't we weren't pushing people, we weren't um, trying to create drama and conflict. Uh, and I think it works. And I think I guess the honesty of it is is refreshing compared to a, a lot of what's out there. Yeah, I, I mean you're absolutely right. The people who go on reality shows are weaned on the reality shows that came before. They're trained by them, and that's another aspect of this show. All of your characters are utterly guileless, not only about dating but about reality television, and so that must have been refreshing. Oh, it was great. I mean, I, I, I loved Ruth's comment about you know this is a bit like The Bachelor, this picnic, you know. Um, you know, and Thomas saying it's entirely scripted. I mean, I love that stuff. I love that they were referencing it themselves. You know, it was great. 
I just want to tell you, my favorite moment was when I think it was Kelvin was talking directly into the camera as one does on reality TV and giving his, sometimes this is like a confession cam, but it was in the middle of a date and he was giving his uh, impression of his dates. Tian, uh, Jessica is a very nice girl to me. She likes video games, movies and traveling, and, but she doesn't like anime. That's not manga. true. I, I actually do like anime. I just like video games more. It was so, it was, it was such a, such a uh, turning over of the normal tropes of reality TV. It was great. Yeah, no, that was, that was great. Yeah, that was really fun that day. I think that was great. And, you know, they, those guys got along really well and they had a great time. And, um, you know, it, it was so much fun to make this series, you know as well as trying to make something important that raises awareness, it was also actually really enjoyable to make. What is the line between having fun with one of your subjects and making fun of one of your subjects? Uh, I guess it, to me, it, it, it just is a line that you feel and that is in your gut. And just knowing that you are wanting to make something that is completely respectful to all the people who participated in it and always wanting at the end of the day for them to be really happy with the end product. I guess when you think about something like that in terms of having fun, I think Michael is, I guess, the example in that Michael is really funny and 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 you kind of do come close to that line sometimes in thinking, am I laughing at him or am I laughing with him? And what Michael says, which is really interesting, is Michael loves making people laugh and he doesn't even care if he doesn't understand why people are laughing. And Michael will say, <laughs> you know, when I try and make people laugh, they don't. But when I'm just, you know, being myself, people will think it's funny. And I guess knowing that also kind of guided our, I guess, our storytelling when it came to the edit of, of Michael's story is we we know what Michael's like. We know what, what he appreciates and how he feels about his uh, his humor and the same with his family you know they um some people you know have said oh michael's family they're laughing at him but they're not they're they're appreciating that michael has a different viewpoint and they're, they're laughing at the way he puts things if she's the right person for me then always i'll consider proposing to her okay by coincidence i've already decided on the perfect wedding ring for my partner the form of a crown to signify that she'll be my queen per se. But I'm not really too keen on kids at the moment because I have a feeling that having children will ruin my chances of becoming wealthy. <laughs> they kind of do. <laughs> There's something about him that, you know, just the way he talks and the, the things he says and the way he says them, his delivery of them, it's really comedic. And he loves that. And speaking of Michael, I mean, you know, and, and the relationship you have with participants. I mean, I speak to Michael every couple of days, you know. I've, I've spoken to him so much since the show went to air. I mean, I just spoke to him last night, you know, about all sorts of things. He, he rings me up all the time. So we've got a great relationship and, you know, yeah, I feel like it, it's really about that line that you just know is there and making sure you never cross it. And having said that, you know, there are moments where we'll get into the edit and we'll edit a scene and we'll say, you know what, this just feels, this just doesn't feel right. It might be really entertaining, it might be really fun, but we just need to pull back because it just is starting to feel like, mm, it just doesn't feel right and, and it might not 
be the representation of that person that that they would be happy with. So is anyone who's seen the show, are they uh, doing that thing of shipping characters who didn't meet in the actual show? Yeah, I don't. What do you mean by shipping? I'm glad you asked. This is a this is a reality TV term, or actually it's an all TV term for hoping that characters get into a relationship. So wishing that certain characters go on dates or get together. Oh, like say two people from the series? Yes, being yet so is the public being yentas or matchmakers with anyone on the series? Uh, I have read a few things where people are suggesting that Michael and Maddie should uh, meet up. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the one thing I've read quite a lot. But I don't know. I think Michael's very particular about what he's after and Maddie's also very particular about she, what she's after. And I think I, I just don't feel like the two of them are a great match. Uh, the thing is, too, um, we got everyone together for a photo shoot to, to shoot some key art for the series and everyone met each other for the first time. So that was really interesting. And, you know, Michael was, uh, you know, he was pretty keen on Olivia and Chloe at the time. (laughs) Keanu Cleary is the director of the Netflix series Love on the Spectrum. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The police chief of Seattle, Carmen Best, announced her resignation yesterday. The call for massive 50% cuts in the police department weighed upon her. A personal salary reduction of 40% didn't sit well, though she said it wasn't about the money. Personally, being cut out of the plan to restructure the police department, that rankled. But when asked, was there one last straw that broke the camel's back, she read during a press conference from an email. I'm going to read uh, an email that I got just last night, the, w- the only email that brought tears to my eyes, um, but it was really something. So this officer uh, sends me this email. Thank you for what you've done for me personally and for this department. I've finally been hired after applying for five years, and I was ecstatic that it was under your command. Being an African, African-American male with you as my chief, made the fact that I had served my country under the Honorable Barack Obama that much sweeter. And I remember meeting him. His name is Marcus Jones. He was uh, doing temperature checks in the building, and we shook hands and we talked. A great young man, tall, stout, wonderful African-American man. And he is one of the people that will probably not keep a job here. And that, for me, I'm done. Can't do it. So that's your answer. Now, I live 3,000 miles away from Seattle, and I'm not nearly as familiar with its policing as I am with, say, the NYPD, though I have interviewed a former Seattle police chief, Norman Stamper, and I have been following what's been going on there since George Floyd was killed. The phrase, no-win situation, comes to mind. Many liberal cities actually have hard-ass police chiefs who don't seem particularly well-suited to their cities. You would say they don't really represent the best tradition or ideals of progressive policing. But places like Minneapolis and their chief Arredondo and Seattle with its chief best, they do in fact seem like the kind of people who you'd want to lead departments in those kinds of communities. From what I've seen, if you want a police force that respects and has the respect of all the community, you would want someone like Carmen Best to be your police chief. It is clear, however, that is not what much of the community wants. 
A 50% cut in police funding. So replaced with what exactly? An idea? A slogan for reform? It's understandably anxiety-inducing for a lot of Seattle residents. That is what was on the table, 50% cut. As I've talked about before, a cut in funding and a freeze in hiring means that old set-in-their-ways police officers will be retained, while new officers, like the one whose email Chief Best read, will be shut out of policing. And the remaining officers, well, as far as I could tell, still have the protections of belligerent unions, so I don't see how that will nudge along substantive reform. And yes, sure, there is propaganda and exaggeration and dishonesty on Fox News and from the administration about the state of protests or lawlessness or looting in certain cities, places like Seattle and Portland, lots of protests still going on, some of them turning ugly. But that doesn't mean that stories of fireworks fired at the Portland courthouse is simply the stuff of Sputnik News or a misinformation campaign. Costs, that really happened. This was on local non-Fox TV station KATU on your side, Portland. Overnight, no one was able to get into the building, but that's obviously not what happened on Saturday night. According to police, people were able to break into the building through a window and then set a fire inside. Police say they declared a riot last night due to direct attacks on officers when people started throwing eggs and fireworks at them. The reporter was doing a stand-up from the police union headquarters, upon which were spray-painted the words, burn cop unions. There really was a lawless zone in Seattle that was the site of murders. There really is an unpoliced area in South Minneapolis, the neighborhood where George Floyd was killed, where residents, mostly black residents, are scared because police leave it alone after dark. Over the weekend in Chicago, this video crew from the ABC affiliate was documenting people dragging an ATM down the sidewalk trying to break it open when they heard shots from the other direction. Multiple shots fired and we're hearing continued shots fired right now. And we're hearing some kind of shootout. We don't know who it's between, but there is there have been multiple shots fired. It could have been one of several incidents of shots fired in Chicago. Police did arrest more than 100 people on suspicion of theft, disorderly conduct, and battery. Police also shot and injured a suspect in Englewood after they say he had fired a weapon at officers. That man is expected to survive. Now, I should note Chicago had 105 murders in July, up from 44 of the July of the year before. There were 500 84 shooting victims in Chicago in July. So making a huge deal over 100 arrests for things like disorderly conduct, I suppose it should be put in context. But that doesn't diminish my point. In a way, it makes it that there is not just an over-policing problem, there is a huge under-policing problem too. If you want to lump both of those things into a single category, let's call it mal-policing. But I don't see how a 50% budget cut across the board is the safest solution to the problem of mal-policing. I think what it does, advocating for and actually enacting huge budget cuts, maximally sticks it to the hated police, and that is perhaps a satisfying blow to land for policing critics. Again, I don't know that it best serves the interests of all the people. When speaking of Carmen Best earlier, I used the phrase no-win situation. Maybe that's because her opponents and the most impassioned forces advocating for 50% defunding of police don't want a win, don't want a policing solution. 
They only want a depolicing solution, and they refuse to admit or grapple with the fact that such a policy seems to necessarily bring along with it an increase in crime and danger. They can wish it doesn't. They could blame the police for withdrawing like cowards, but the fact remains that every time massive depolicing initiatives go into effect, crime does seem to go up. It seems to me that someone like Carmen Best is better thought of as part of a solution towards our mal-policing mal problem, towards evolving to a guardian mindset, than thought of as part of the problem. What's going on is I think the harshest critics of policing will not want to preserve any vestiges of the establishment. Best was criticized for police under her watch, excessively cracking down on protests, but I've got to think that is pretty much a proxy for cracking down on protest at all. So what is the best plan for a transition to the police we have now, to our imagined community policing initiatives? Is it to hope for the best whenever someone establishes an unpoliced zone? Is it to just underline again and again some pithy slogan about how you can't morally compare lives to property which owes part of its pith to the fact that it begs the question. If defunders, or 50% defunders, not the 20% that soon to be former chief best advocated for, if the 50% defunders get their way, there will be a suite of slogans, chants, and commitments that they could cite to tell the story of how their activism worked. There will also be, I worry, I have serious worries, there will also be a slew of victims who bear the brunt of those choices, and those victims will disproportionately hail from the very communities the defunders want to protect. I can imagine all the ways the defunders will be able to explain, ignore, de-emphasize, gainsay the actual victims. But a more thoughtful, responsible approach might both contain crime and the excesses of crime fighting. We all know that one challenge of policing is that it's hard to maintain reason when adrenaline is pumping and the consequences of your decision can be life-altering. But that is true of the challenge of reforming the police as well. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Margaret Kelly, who, when she was a single woman, led a dating life that was on the spectrum from bad to worse, am I right? Ack! Sorry, I... Didn't mean Margaret Kelly, I meant comic strip character Kathy. Just producer Daniel Schrader points out that Kathy actually had a steady beau. His name was Irving. And Irving wasn't on the spectrum, but you know who might have been? John. Also, maybe Ood. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, who loves a feel-good dating show. Yet on some level, she feels a bit of vindication when a romance based on a disdain for ketchup does not work out. The gist. I want to admit something. Loving Irving, saying hack, fearing swimsuit season, yearning thinner thighs. That little girl was me. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>